Amen. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible or a device, turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We are going to jump in because this, uh, this is a difficult passage, so I kind of have to get right at it. 1 Corinthians 14. We are still in this series, this small little micro-series we're doing on spiritual gifts and how we love each other. Next week we will end that series, but this week is going to be especially helpful, I think. I'm going to read just 19 verses. We're going to go 1 through 19, and this is the word of the Lord for us. Paul is going to be speaking to a very young church, as we've seen over the last several weeks, and I'm going to start in the verse before just to kind of set up this chapter. Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then he kicks it off in chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, and encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct tones, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Therefore, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, I'm gonna pause right there for a moment. And let me just assure you, there's plenty of opportunity to see and savor Jesus in this text. Plenty of opportunity, and I promise we're gonna get to it. It just, it can be easy to get lost in this passage, right? I mean, for instance, this is not primarily a discussion on some civil war between tongues and prophecy. It's really a discussion on how we so easily prefer ourselves over others. And because we're all a little bit Corinthian inside of us, this value is of great value to us. This passage is going to be helpful for us. Even if you don't have these gifts, by the way, 
There's going to be plenty for you to gain here. I mean, I've prophesied maybe once or twice in my life. It's not a ministry I carry with me, right? I've never spoken in tongues. I've never had that gift, yet I've been challenged greatly by this passage. I see Christ clearly in this passage. It's provoked me to repent, and it's provoked me to celebrate all at the same time, which is our, that's our goal in any passage. Anytime you hear a sermon from this pulpit, you need to know that our goal is to show that the gospel of God for mankind is the pinnacle achievement in human history, the pinnacle achievement That the gospel of God for you, this favor upon you through the person of Jesus who lived, died, and lived again, and and sends his Holy Spirit to us, this good news is, is really what this Bible is lifting up and elevating for all to see. And it's that gospel that interprets our hearts and draws us close to Jesus where we can enjoy him and change. It's difficult to see in passages like this, though, isn't it? Because this seems so distant from a cross and a tomb. And it seems so far from November 10th, 2019. It seems so far. It's so mysterious and controversial. For instance, many of you, you grew up in environments, probably most of you grew up in environments where prophecy and speaking in tongues was taught as something that is extinct. It stopped at some point in the history, exactly when, no one really knows, it just doesn't happen today. Okay? So whenever you get to passages like that, like an entire chapter of the Bible, you don't know really what to do with it. It's like reading a a biology textbook from the 18th century. Probably helpful back then, not helpful at all right now. Interesting, sure. Applicable, no. Others of you, most likely a smaller group, grew up in environments where these gifts were abused, and they created a confusing environment a place where things were kind of odd, maybe. I've been in settings like this as well, right? Plenty of great people. Plenty of people who love other people. Plenty of emotion. Also plenty of theater. Not a lot pointing to Jesus. Settings like that, they don't drip with hospitality. So it's going to be with hesitancy that we would bring friends into something like that, whether it's a setting like this or a setting like a living room, right? And because how we define hospitality is grace given to outsiders, basically making outsiders feel welcome. That is a grace to them. There is nothing, there is nothing graceful or hospitable about a very confusing environment, right? I think we get that a lot of times. Legacy's goal, one of our big goals is to build a movement of churches and calm groups where the only stumbling block that we really have is Jesus. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. People will come and go. People will come into settings like this and they will go. They will come into living rooms and they will go and they will bail on whatever our flavor of church is, but let it not, let it not be that they're bailing on us because of confusion or selfishness. If, if there is a stumbling block that we provide the city, let it be because the gospel is very bad news before it's very good news. It's an offensive message before it's an intoxicating message. I mean, now listen, I know some of you, you don't even have a church history, so maybe a lot of this is lost on you. A passage like this is probably like reading, reading something out of a fantasy book. You don't even know what's going on. You probably even feel a little bit left out and dumb right now, like your Bible IQ is too low to even sit through a sermon like this. Let me just assure you, you are in the right place. If it feels like to you that the rest of the room knows something that you don't, that's not the case. Nobody knows what's going on in this. There's, I mean, it's, this is a very seldom taught passage. In fact, if we were to do a raising of hands, very few of you would say that you've sat through a sermon teaching 1 Corinthians 14. Right? 
I looked. We have taught this three times in our church's history. Three, this will be the third today, right? Over 400 sermons. That means that we have done this less than 1%, which means we preach about it a lot comparatively, right? Some of you have been here for some of that. But with these two gifts specifically, tongues and prophecy, even Jesus-loving theologians, scholars who love Jesus, they don't even land in the same place. I have good friends that lead very healthy churches. They don't agree with me on this, on all aspects of this. You might not either, and that's okay. I promise I'm not mad at you. As I said in the last partnership class, I've said in every partnership class, you don't have to agree with everything that we believe as a position as a church when it's an open-handed issue. You don't have to. You just can't cause division wherever the church does stand. That's all we ask. That's all we ask. You might not agree with me today. In fact, my goal, it's not even to convince you that these gifts are for today. I'm already coming from that position, right? If you don't understand that, and you're a guest, we've got several sermons that we've preached coming up to this moment that you can go back and listen to. We've done two other sermon series on this same thing. You can go back and listen to those as well. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service as well if you have questions. But my goal is not to get into the weeds with a passage like this because it's not the main idea of the text. As a pastor, as a communicator, I'm gonna stick to the main idea of the text, right? The main idea is also not Tongue talkers should just stop it because it's weird. They look weird. It's making everything weird. Not the main idea. The main idea is also not prophecy is really cool. Tongues are weird, so prophecy is better. Tongue talkers, you're junior varsity. Sorry, that's the way it goes. Also not the main idea of the text. What Paul is saying and what is the main idea is that the church is the healthiest when it spends its gifts in a way that builds others up instead of themselves. That's it. The main idea is that when we're gathered, whether gathered here or gathered in the living room, the main idea is that we are in our healthiest moment when we are building each other up instead of ourselves, right? And what's interesting to me about this text is Paul does not do the very predictable thing that I think I would do. I mean, remember, he's getting reports that they're just bashing each other with these gifts. Like I said last week, they're using these gifts as power tools on each other, right? They look very immature. I think had I been in Paul's position, my letter to the Corinthians might have said, all right, stop it. Just stop all of it, right? Apparently, you guys are not mature enough to handle this. I don't even know what's going on there. It just sounds like a bunch of weird stuff. There's more important things to talk about, so let's just put all that stuff on ice until you guys get smarter or more mature. He doesn't do that. In fact, he does the opposite. I would just want all the madness to stop. I would be like the parents spinning around to the back seat of the car saying, listen, if you guys are going to fight over that toy, just give me the toy. Now nobody gets the toy. Nobody gets the toy, right? Paul says, he doesn't just encourage them to earnestly desire the gifts. I'm about to make the point that he commands them to. Commands them to earnestly desire more. Let me tell you something. Never let, <laughs> never let someone tell you that the abuse of gifts mean that the gifts should be put away. Paul wouldn't agree with that. It's not the logic that Paul is lining up with right now. When it comes to spiritual gifts and there is abuse, the answer is proper use. It's not disuse, okay? Suppression of zeal, that's never the answer when it comes to spiritual gifts. And then to kind of prove his point, he elevates a specific gift, which is especially powerful in corporate settings. Corporate meaning anything from two people up to 2,000 people, and that's prophecy, in prophecy, if you don't know this, it is not just 
foretelling future events. That it is, it's not less than that, but it is significantly more than that. In fact, here is, I think, a very helpful definition of prophecy that I feel good about. It's a good, clean definition. The human report of a divine revelation where we speak something God spontaneously brought to mind, right? The human report of a divine revelation where we speak something God spontaneously brought to mind. This is what it's not. It's not personal insight or intuition. Some of you, you have a very, very sharp gift of intuition and insight, all right? You really do. It's not that. That's a great gift, but that's a natural thing as well. Prophecy is a supernatural or a divine thing, which is what makes it a little bit different, right? It's also not preaching and teaching. I mean, when we preach and we teach, it's based off of scripture. It's not spontaneous. Prophecy is a little bit different in the fact that it is spontaneous. Prophecy is also not scripture. It doesn't share the weight and the authority that scripture does. In fact, prophecy is bound up in scripture. Scripture judges prophecy. It keeps us safe that way. Why do we need that? Because there's a lot of errors in prophecy. And, and only because we have a lot of errors in us when we, when we prophesy over each other. You see, there's also an anatomy to prophecy. It's probably good for you to know this. There's three main parts to it. Some would disagree with this. I think this is the safest way to look at it, though. There is a perfect revelation where God speaks to us divinely. That's perfect. But then there's an imperfect interpretation where when we hear divinely, we attempt to ascertain the meaning. And there's a lot that can get in the way there, right? The drugs we did in high school, a bad night's sleep, a bad mood, you know, we could just have a little bit of sin in us and add a little bit to it. There's a lot that could get in the way when it comes to interpretation. But then there's also an imperfect application. And that's where we attempt to the best of our ability to extend or convey the message to somebody else. Out of those three pieces of prophecy, only one is perfect. The first one, the revelation. The other two, there is loaded with opportunity for error which is why a lot of people don't think that the church should be using it. That's why a lot of people think that we should just put it on a shelf and call it something that happened way back in the day. And listen, I totally get this reflex, by the way. And it's usually coming from Christians that are very, they're groomed in a very strong Bible-based church that is watchful for even the slightest whiff of being fake or even the littlest bit of abuse. And I applaud you for that. You should look for those things. I look for those things as well. But I know that the temptation can be in us, hey, if that is a polluted gift, then we shouldn't even use it. Like, if, if, if it's that prone to error, Luke, then why are we even using it? I don't know that that's great logic. I think it's bad logic when we demand that a gift be perfect in order for it to be valuable. We don't treat other gifts that way either. Teaching and preaching being one of them. I mean, this is what I'm doing right now. There's the potential for error. And there's the potential for abuse. Administration, rows and columns and numbers. There's the potential for error. There's also the potential for abuse. But we don't lay those gifts down and say that there's no value in those gifts, do we? No. What do we do? We examine prophecy by the scripture that judges it and keeps it healthy. Which is what we do for teaching too, by the way, right? Which is why you're supposed to fact check me. Look and see if these things that I'm saying are true. You don't have to take my word for it. I'd prefer you not. I'd prefer you become a student of the word. See, prophecy is a fantastic gift. It's helpful. It's helpful for those who are far from Christ. It's really helpful for those who are in Christ. I was talking to my wife this week because I'm hunting down a cassette recorder. <laughs> you can't find them anywhere. 
But growing up, we had people prophesy over us. They're all on cassette. So, but one of them stuck out in my mind because I'll never forget it. It was in 1999. It was just finishing our graduate program for campus ministry, right? About to head off and go straight into the college campus. And a seasoned man who flowed in this gift of prophecy pulled us up in front of a bunch of people and said, listen, I really feel like the Lord has a message for you. I'm going to do the best I can to give it to you. It's going to be up to you to weigh this. He said, I, the, he says, I feel like the Lord is saying that you're going to do a good job in campus ministry and you will enjoy it, but there are churches in you guys. That you will be planting churches that will be planting churches. That the campus is exciting now, and you're going to do great work on the campus, but there are cities that I am sending you guys to. And now listen, at the time, I didn't even know what church planting was. Never heard of it before. Never heard of it. I, didn't, I never once thought about, how, well, how do churches even start? Didn't even think about that. All I had in my, my eyesight was one college campus in Texas. But I was still encouraged, who won last night, by the way, that college campus. <laughs> but this is what I did know. This is what I did know. I was highly encouraged. I felt thought for. I felt considered. I felt seen, heard, like the Lord was engaged in my family, like he was considering not just where we were right in that moment, but where, what we would grow into. Listen, this is what prophecy does. It builds us up. It finds us. It encourages us. It lays us bare and just reminds us that we're deeply known, that we're heard, that we're seen. It shows that God is engaged. Its main purpose is not to foretell events yet to come. It's to build us up in the present. That's the main goal. If you have this gift, by the way, it is of great import in the church. It has the power to disclose the human heart in ways that other gifts simply can't do. It has evangelistic power but it also has the power to take those who love Jesus and build them up in the Lord. It's a weighty gift. And hear me clearly when I say we welcome it here. We welcome this gift here. We desire the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to build each other up through the gift of prophecy. Now, next week, I'll get to go a little bit more in detail on how we, how we groom that to happen here and the safeguards we put up here. But I want you to know, if you've ever felt like, hey, I think I might have that gift, I'm gonna tell you, that you're welcome. You're welcome here. And we want to work alongside you as a church to develop that as a gift for God's glory and for the common good. But Paul says the best part about this gift, in his opinion, is it doesn't require an interpretation. It's plug and play. You, you, I mean, besides the word judging it, it's, it's a singular person activity, right? Not so with the gift of tongues. Speaking in tongues is also a fantastic gift, but it's not useful at all in a corporate setting unless there's an interpreter, right? It doesn't do anyone any good. The first time we see this in the Bible, this gift of tongues is gonna be in Acts 2. I'm gonna read it to you. It'll, it'll likely be up on the screen as well. Um, if you have a Bible and you're quick, you could turn over there. If not, that's fine. Acts 2, verse 2. In fact, go ahead and stay where you're at if you're already there because we're gonna keep reading here in a minute. It says this, this is on the day called Pentecost, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, 
There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, what that means is, is you have people there that are all Jewish, but they're from the north and the east and the south and the west. They speak different languages, right? And as the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And it says that they were listening to the mighty works of God later on, that that's what they were hearing. Okay? This is a moment where there was no needed gift of interpretation. The interpretation was happening by the people from different countries and different nations. Human language was, they they were understood by listeners. What's happening in Corinth that Paul is speaking to in our passage today, that's a different thing. That's a different thing, right? Corinthians were speaking in unknown tongues without interpretation. No interpretation. So no one was being helped. No one was understanding. No one was hearing the mighty works of God. No one was hearing the gospel. No one knew what was going on. They're just looking for the door, right? And what are these exactly, these tongues that Paul is speaking to, right? The answer's gonna be a little bit more vague because we don't know exactly. Could it be human languages? Absolutely it could be. It could be human languages, and I think very likely there, there probably could be that in there. But also the text leans very heavily towards a spiritual or unearthly language as well. And there's a couple reasons I believe that. In Paul, we saw last week him speaking in chapter 13 where he says that these tongues are of men and of angels. Okay? He could be speaking in hyperbole. I don't know. Maybe not. But he does say in verse 2 of our passage today that you're speaking to God. You're not speaking to men. And what you're speaking is a mystery that nobody understands. doesn't sound like Spanish to me. doesn't sound like German to me. Right? sounds like a divine gift from God. Besides, if you needed a gift of interpretation to complement a gift like this, then some languages evidently are not of human origin, right? I mean, if it was only human languages, then you wouldn't need a gift of interpretation. You just need a good app for your phone or a really good education, right? Went to college for something, maybe. You don't need a gift. Also, Paul says that outsiders would think that you were out of your mind if, you, if they came in and saw everybody speaking in tongues and there was no interpretation, But think about it. If you walked into a room and everybody was speaking Korean or Swahili or French, you wouldn't think that they were out of your mind. You'd think that they were probably more cultured than you, right, or more educated or took some college classes you didn't take. You'd think a lot of things, but you wouldn't think they were crazy. Unlike prophecy, unlike prophecy, speaking in tongues is different in the fact that although it's not helpful without interpretation in a setting like this, a corporate one, it is helpful when you are by yourself. Right. Paul will actually speak to this in the text we look at next week. He says, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. Okay? Okay, now, let's just get the obvious out there right now. This particular gift has a terrible public image today. Right? It has not aged well, especially in this part of the country. I, I don't have this gift, but if I told you that I did, you'd look at me different. You'd see me a little different. Because it appears mindless. It looks hillbilly, right? It looks odd. It it builds these images in our head of someone sporadically mumbling something with their eyes rolled back in their head and they're holding a snake in their hand or something like that. 
They're in a trance. It looks like they have no brain. This is what it does not. It, it does not build an image in your head of sophistication, does it? You don't think of the gift of tongues and think, yeah, sophisticated. Nobody does. The reason you don't is because nobody does. And there's nothing I can do about this perception except to lead you to the scripture and see how Paul handles it, right? See how he does. He doesn't mock it, does he? He spends time on it, but just putting it in its rightful place for the common good. But he says, I practice it more than any of you, and I wish more of you did. Those are his words. At that point, I have to ask myself why I'm making fun of it, right? I mean, if God built this gift and he hand delivers this gift, then at some point I just got to check my mockery at the door. I think all of us do, really. But what is it for? I mean, what does it do? Tongues, right? Apparently, according to Paul, it's for prayer and self-encouragement. Maybe not to build the next person up, but to build self up. Okay? That's why it's a little bit different than prophecy. This gift holds a powerful way to intimately connect to God. And we see this in verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. And listen, it's important to do that. It's not a selfish thing to build yourself up. I mean, think of the things you do to encourage yourself. I read the Bible to encourage myself. There's music that I listen to to encourage myself. I get around friends, and it's encouraging to me. Um, There's all kinds of stuff that we do to encourage ourselves. This is an amplified gift that allows you to do it quickly and powerfully, the speaking in tongues, right? I just think that a lot of people in here probably have never met anyone who's actively walked in a gift like this. And because I haven't, I'm going to read an account to you from somebody who does operate in this gift, the gift of tongues. He says this, one night in October of 1970, quite without warning, my normal, somewhat routine prayer was radically interrupted. I suddenly began speaking forth words of uncertain sound and form. I didn't start out by consciously muttering a few senseless syllables, which then would give way to a more coherent linguistic experience. It was more like a spiritual invasion in which the spirit intruded on my life, interrupted my speech patterns, and gave utterance. There was a profound intensification of my sense of God's nearness and power. I distinctly remember feeling a somewhat detached sensation as if I were separate from the one speaking. I'd never experienced anything remotely similar to that in all my life. It was the first time I'd ever experienced the sensation of thinking in one language while speaking in another. My reaction to something so unfamiliar and new was a strange mixture of both fear and exhilaration. I was confused, but at the same time felt closer to God than ever before. At at the time, I did not have a theological category to describe what had happened. That is the account by Sam Storms who's written books on this. And I will just say, before we are so quick to say that is something that is not sophisticated, he sits on the board of both the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God. He is the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He has taught for over 20 years and written over 45 published material. I mean, he is is about as sophisticated as you're going to find, and he's beloved in the kingdom of God, right? And he had a real experience, and it was a real gift from God. If you've never seen anything like this before, it could seem strange, because it just doesn't sound like a human language. It can actually seem like it's fake or incoherent or gibberish of some kind. And that's why a lot of people hate it and resent it and mock it. And that is not Paul's attitude on it. Again, according to Paul, this is God's idea. He built this gift. But like other gifts, this one too can be abused. 
to glorify ourselves and to hurt others. This gift too, just like any other. That's, that's why he's writing this to Corinth. That was the problem Corinth was happening. I mean, think of it this way. Anytime you're operating in a gift that no one else in the room understands and they don't feel like they can, I guess, challenge you on it, you're just going to feel superior. You're going to feel superior to everyone else in the room. So what these Corinthians were doing, who were abusing this anyway, they were leveraging this gift for their personal glory because they were putting self above others. They're putting themselves against everyone else in the room. It's important for you to know that Paul is not saying that tongues are unhelpful. He's saying uninterpreted tongues are unhelpful in a gathering. That's what he's saying. But when gathered, encouraging the church is more important than encouraging yourself. Which is why he goes on to say this in verse 20. So go back to your passage. And this is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. We're just going to read a few verses. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. It's a cool passage. There's a little bit of a part in that that trips people up, and I believe it's probably verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And he talks about, um, well, I mean, right before that, he says, in the law, meaning the Old Testament, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, thus says the Lord. This is the context behind that. Paul is lifting this out of the Old Testament. He's actually lifting it out of Isaiah. 700 years before this was written, back in the days of Isaiah, Israel refused to listen to God whenever God would talk to them about the rebellion. God would send prophets. The prophets would say, hey, you're a rebellious people, and they wouldn't listen. And so God said through Isaiah that he was going to discipline his rebellious people, not by bringing more people that spoke languages that they understood, but by bringing people that spoke languages that they would not in the Assyrians. He's talking about the Assyrian invasion. He's basically saying, hey, listen, if you're not going to listen to me when you do understand the language, maybe you'll listen to me when you don't understand the language. That's all he's saying right now. But he's lifting that and he's putting it here in the New Testament for you and me today by saying, hey, listen, if people were to come in here into legacy on a Sunday morning and they don't understand what's going on because everyone's babbling in syllables that are strung together and there's no interpretation, if that happens, then people are going to leave without hearing the gospel. They're going to leave without hearing anything that can bring faith in them and they will be headed for destruction. Because if the gospel doesn't find you, destruction will. He's saying this confusing language is a sign of destruction. Just like it was for Israel back then, it is a sign of destruction now. As a side note, probably a different sermon, I do think that this is also a contemporary warning to the church not to build settings or environments that are incomprehensible to people coming in. Right? I mean, this is for, this is for the church. A Sunday morning, a, a gathering, this is primarily for the church. That's where our priority is. 
yet. Let's not build something that when an outsider comes in or someone is just seeking and wanting to learn more about God, all they run into is walls of confusion. <laughs> Let's not build that either. Let's not send folks away confused. But prophecy is different in the fact that it would result in repentance for those who are coming in who are unbelievers. This is what he says in verse 25. Paul speaks of God disclosing the secrets of the heart. And I actually opened up this entire series talking about this when I said back in 1996, when I walked in, walked across a student center, and I saw a young man, and the Lord gave me a gift of a word of knowledge, which is probably half prophecy as well. I don't know. I don't know where the line, you know, where one ends and one starts. But I remember talking to him, and just as I said, the guy became a Christian. His heart was disclosed. God worked through that. Because when we're confronted with the beautiful truth that God knows us deeply, when we're confronted with that truth, we're built up. This is good. Even if you have good theology, doesn't it still feel like God doesn't really know you? Can't it feel like he's abandoned you, left you, doesn't see you, doesn't hear you? Prophecy is God saying, I'm here. Oh, I love you and I see you. I hear I'm engaged. I'm thinking of you. I'm considering you and your affairs. So what does a passage like that mean for us today? Drawing a straight line from there to today, right? What does it mean? Because we're obviously not a church where tongues are abused in the corporate setting. (laughs) I think it's happened like once or twice. Somebody in the cheap seats muttered something in tongues, probably quickly looked around and noticed nobody else was doing it, so they stopped and never came back, right? And you'll be happy to know no one was struck by lightning, right? So it's not like a problem we have in Knoxville, Tennessee, in this church. It's just not. Neither is flamboyant prophecy. Come to think of it, I don't think we have any spiritual gifts that are being abused that are keeping the pastors up at night. Right? Don't think that's an issue for us. We do have an opposite issue, like most of the contemporary church. I think many people resent spiritual gifts. They resist spiritual gifts. And so they won't pursue them. Let me ask you, how is that better? How is that better? I mean, it's still putting self above the common good. It's still putting private benefit above public benefit. It's the same problem. It's got different clothes on. Same problem. People are perishing either way. They're not being pointed to Jesus either way. Self is still prevailing. People are not pointed to Jesus. So our ultimate question today is not, should I bring tongue speaking under proper use for the benefit of the church? That's not the question we should be asking in this. It's not our issue. Really what the main idea is, is how do I engage the gifts of the Spirit for the benefit of the church even when it costs me? Even when it costs me. I think when we hear sermons like this, it's usually at this juncture that we bend a little bit by saying, okay, I'm open to it, Luke. All right, I'm open to it. Just in case God did give me something like tongues of prophecy, I guess I'm open to it. But that's not the same thing as eagerly pursuing it, is it? Tolerating it is not the same thing as being earnest and pushing for it. In fact, I'd say probably there are some of us in this room that are debating whether any of this is even worth it. Still seeing this as an option, a back burner issue, a choice. And I am here to tell you today that God has told us to desire the spiritual gifts. He has told us. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts is an imperative for us. This is God's authoritative word for us. Paul is not saying, okay, okay, hear me out and then just think about it. 
all right? Just consider it, go off, you know, rally with a family, maybe jot some stuff down and just consider this and maybe we'll loop back in a few months and talk and see if you're a little bit more open to it. Just think, just think about it, right? He's saying the opposite. This is not an option for God's healthy church. The truth today is if I am not earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts for the common good of the church, if I'm not doing that, I'm in disobedience. That's what Paul's saying. I know that sounds a little harsh, but it is actually odd and inconsistent that we handle that imperative different than we do others. We don't handle slander that way. We don't handle adultery as an option for us. We don't look at giving and say, ah, you know, generous giving, I know that could be a good thing for certain people if they have a certain personality, but right now where I am in my story, I don't know that it's really all that important for me. We don't handle other imperatives like that, but when it comes to earnestly desiring the gifts, we're like, ah, I mean, I'm okay if God does do it. I'm open, I guess, which is code for I'm not really open, and I hope if he does give me something, it's not a weird something, right? This is the real reason we don't desire spiritual gifts for the sake of others. It's because it means we will be lowered, be taken a notch down, right? It will cost us comfort, glory, reputation. There's no way around it. If you're going to pursue and use a spiritual gift, it's going to place you in proximity with others that require you step down to enter their world. And that's where you're needed. And that's going to cost you time and comfort and glory. Listen, there, there is no such thing as healthy missions, which is the extension of God's radical living word to others. Whether it's in this room or out in the city, there's no such thing as missions without sacrifice. does not exist. Show me a missionary who does not suffer loss in some shape or form, and I'll show you an imposter in the same time. Which is why you won't find any class titles here when we teach classes that sound like 10 easy steps to become a missionary. There are zero easy steps in becoming a missionary. There's this many. It's easy to find out where to do missions. Building strategy for missions, easy, simple. You could do it on a napkin in my sleep. It's not hard. Actually getting in the mud, condescending, stepping into somebody else's world where there's pain and it's going to cost us for their benefit and our loss, that's hard. That's hard. But this is where in the passage we see the gospel. And we see the hero of the gospel in Christ. This is where we see it. Because you and I, we come into the world naturally putting us above others. That's just our natural bent. We got that because Adam, our father, did it, right? Me first, you last. That's our factory setting. But the last Adam comes in, and Jesus, and he flips the equation. And no longer is it me first, you last. It's you first, me last. That's the shape of the gospel. That's the shape of the gospel. He lowers himself for the benefit of people who will never love him back near as much. That is the shape of the gospel. He benefits us by losing time, glory, comfort, reputation. That is the shape of the gospel. It's the path of attrition. It's the shape of the gospel. This is why whenever you read Philippians 2, that very famous passage where Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not count the quality of God a thing to be grasped, He's in the form of God, fully God. And he humbles himself to become a servant. And then he steps, it's his mission. This is his missional, his missional reach towards us. Then he steps down again to become human. But then he steps down again, not just to become fully God, fully human now, but also a baby, a baby. In an insignificant nowhere town with an insignificant family, doing an insignificant job, doesn't even look significant, 
And then he humbles himself again into death. But not just the death, he humbles himself even further to find the most shameful death that we reserve for the worst of villains. It's the shape of the gospel. It's the path of attrition. You need to know, if you're a Christian here today, that his move towards you for your good meant him getting rid of his own self-regard. And every single step he took towards you is a piece of himself that he gave away. He did not protect himself from you. He was God's gift to you, fully spent on you, at his cost, for your benefit. And I'm telling you now to use, properly use, a spiritual gift, it will put you in the same shape. It will push you into the same shape. The image, the path of attrition that Jesus took. And why wouldn't it? I mean, he told his father, as I was sent into the world, so I sent these guys into the world. But here's the good news. The good news of that gospel is as you stoop and descend, you will find Jesus to be closer than ever and more beautiful than ever. That's the trade. You are, in fact, going to find out whenever you do step down and exercise your gift, not for yourself but for the person next to you, that is when you find that you don't need to hoard your own reputation. You don't need to worry about it. You're actually full. You're satisfied because you've gotten more of Jesus, right? You will be more satisfied than you've ever been before. And when you are most satisfied, that is when God is most glorified. And that's where you enjoy God in his fullest, So yeah, I mean, the gift is for the person next to you, but ultimately, can't you see how it's for you too? As you lose more of yourself, you get more Jesus at the same time. That's why Paul says, I'd rather speak five words that you do understand than 10,000 that you don't. What is he doing? You first, me last. That's a man that's gripped by the gospel. So there's plenty of room for us to repent in a passage like this. Whatever your spiritual gift is, and if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, Man, I'm, I'm excited about the path and the journey of where we learn that for you and where you learn what it is that God has given you out of his sweetness and his brilliance and his sovereignty, what he has given you. But you're going to need to ask yourself at all times, does my pursuit of the gifts and does my exercise of the gift, does it say me first or does it say me last? That's the big question, right? You'll have to pray like I have to pray. Lord, change my heart. I want to earnestly desire these things, Lord, but I Don't so much. So what's in the way? Show me what's in the way. Lord, give me gifts that build up those people around me. I don't even know what they all are, but I want the ones that help others most, especially prophecy, as Paul would say. And Lord, fill me with your spirit to do this with love, not to do it with selfish pride. And when it costs me dearly in glory and comfort, remind me of the comfort and the glory that you've already given me and the comfort and the glory that you gave away to rescue me. And not only do we have room to repent, there's room to celebrate in a passage like this because when we fail at exercising gifts, whether we're failing at chasing them down or we're failing at using them, God's gift to us and his love is not withheld. He's not in this position where he says, listen, gave you a chance, not doing a great job with it, so you had three gifts and I was excited about them, now you have one, right? Taking some of those gifts back, Or maybe I just don't love you as much, right? I've got people that I love. You were almost there, not there anymore. I'm sorry, maybe next year. That's how we treat each other. That's not how the gospel describes God's care of us, though, right? So if you struggle at pursuing the gifts with eagerness, God is not washing his hands of you. He's still stepping towards you. 
He wants you to enjoy him more. And this is found when you empty yourself for the benefit of others. That means that your best days are before you, by the way. Your best days are before you. Walk humbly. Enjoy how close Jesus comes. And listen, lastly, if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, maybe you came in here because you're seeking. Maybe you grew up in the church and you're just not sure where you're at. You don't think you're saved. You don't think you're a Christian. You might be. You don't know. You get confused. You don't like to talk about it. You need to know that he did not protect himself from you. He did not protect himself from you. He's God's gift to you, full, fully spent on you for your benefit. But this is why it's bad news before it's good news. When I say that we want Jesus to be an offense instead of everything else, what we mean is by God coming close to you, it requires that you know that you are a sinner. The blood is on your hands and you can't wash it off. You can't earn it off. You can't run away from the problem. You're guilty. You're guilty, doomed, condemned in biblical language, which is why the only thing we bring to the table, this formula of salvation, is our desperate need. And at that point, God rushes in, losing a piece of himself as he gains us. Man, the gospel's really good news. Whenever it tells you that there's nothing you can do to earn that kind of love, and so my prayer for you is that you give yourself to such a beautiful and glorious God today. As he stirs your heart, you need to know that's the Holy Spirit stirring your heart. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray us out of this. I realize we went just a hair long. It's really difficult to get through passages like that in 37 minutes. <laughs> but again, if you have questions, I'm available after the service. I do have a lot more to say on that. But I just want to pray for you as a church pray for our city as well. So Father, we thank you for being so good and so kind to us. And Lord, as we listen to music and as we take communion, as we pray and as we interact with you based on what you have shown us in your word, we pray that you would enliven our hearts to eagerly and earnestly desire your gifts. Not because it adds anything to us, but because it takes away from us. We're asking for gifts that are going to do nothing but cost us. Yet at the same time, we get more of you. More of you. Lord, break our heart for the people next to us. Break our heart for the needs in this room and the needs outside of this room. I think when we see a broken city and we see a broken people, we earnestly and eagerly desire the gifts that would quickly point them to you in a way that's helpful. So Lord, break our hearts. Draw us in. And whatever it is that's in the way that's keeping us from asking and earnestly desiring and waiting with expectancy and praying with expectancy for these gifts, Lord, that you would challenge that in our heart in a way that we can see it and repent. Lord, for we are not this church. We are not, we are not a church that abuses spiritual gifts. We are a church that doesn't really walk in them. And I don't think that's any healthier. Lord, that we would become a healthier church because we spend our gifts selflessly on each other, whatever that means. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. We don't just pray for that. We pray and celebrate, God, and thank you for what you've done. The greatest gift you've already given in Christ. It's the greatest gift we've already been given. And you give us this gift fresh every day as we have new mercies and new grace waiting for us every single day. 
No, Lord, every step you took towards me, I didn't want you to come any closer to me. I didn't ask for you to come closer to me. In fact, I was running away from you as fast as I could. And still you apprehended me. Your grace is so beautiful, I could not say anything but yes, Lord. And Lord, that's what we pray for in this room and in this city, that your grace would arrest people, that your grace would be fascinating to people, that your story would be widely told, accurately told, passionately told by your church. And then, Lord, we pray for those in this room that have yet to receive that gift, that have yet to become one of your children, but you're after them. You're messing with them. You're convicting them. You're giving them sweaty palms. You're giving them a quick heart rate. You're giving them a discomfort, even sitting in a place like this. Maybe they're becoming even more fascinated. Maybe they're becoming more resolved. Maybe it's all at the same time. Lord, that you would capture their hearts and call them son, call them daughter. That today would be a day of new beginnings for people in this room and people in this city. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so good and gracious and kind to us. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for this passage. It's in your name we pray. Amen.